Welcome into Loserville, folks. I'm TC Fleming here with Phil Kingston, and today we have a special guest, uh, Mr. Schutz. I don't know if you've received any of my messages, um, but I I have been trying to talk to you on some form of this podcast for for years now. So this is a wonderful treat that I am very excited for. Uh, it's it's Jim Schutz, folks. Welcome to the podcast. And uh, it was great to be here. And I apologize for any and all messaging mishaps. I'm horrible. Yeah, there was never there was never like a response back of like uh, I refuse to ever do your show. So I, I, I didn't take it personally at any point. Um, you know, there's really it was unclear if any of them had gone through. You know, or maybe just this was an abandoned email address. But you're here now. Uh, certainly, that's what we ought to focus yeah. on at this juncture. Um, I understand you wrote a book. Is that true? I did. I did. Well, I've written I've written seven of them, but I bet we're not here to talk about Cauldron of Blood. So, uh, I, I would love. I, I don't know what Cauldron of Blood is, is about, but I'd love to based on the title. Uh, one of my uh, wife and I's first dates. This will tell you a lot about me and her and uh, the, the way that we are. Was uh, to uh, she had a VHS copy of Bully. Um, so your your oh. your writing is very important in our relationship. I would say. Oh, cool! Great! Yeah, Cauldron of Blood has been on my like bed stand reading list for years, <laughs> and I need to actually read it. The editor uh, told me later that we missed the target demographic with the title. He said it should have been called Large Pot of Blood. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the accommodation. Um, You know, I mean, I I assume that that's why we're talking now, right? Like uh, you're on some sort of promotional tour. Yeah, his people called me about his book tour and and, and (laughs) wanted us to book him so that he could hawk copies of this important tome that will certainly uh, fund his retirement. Well, also, and usually when you an author gets booked for something like this, you usually get lunch with it, like a lunch hour. I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, Philip, if you could uh, drop something off when we're done here, I think that's an easy enough uh, you could have you. lunch. You could have lunch sent over. It's true. I, I, have, I have liquor. No, I can't. I'm sorry. I'm a recovering journalist. <laughs> I uh, yeah, so I, 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 I don't, I don't know where to start. I, I've, I've, I've read the book. I like it a lot. Um, and uh, you know, I, there's, there's just a million directions I, I could go with this. And uh, the one that that is bubbling up to me first is just uh, wanting to know why it's only convenient for me to buy the book now. Uh, I've, I've heard the story many times. Yeah. Uh, some of them from you. But, uh, you know, I, I guess the, the one part that I always want to know more detail about, uh, if, if, if you have it, is um, just the, the initial printing uh, was you, you had a publisher lined up and they got scared. Um, you know, it, it was. Yeah, it was going to be locally published by Taylor Publishing. It was going to be their first trade book. They were like the world's biggest publisher of high school yearbooks. And they got a new owner. And the owner wanted to use some of their down press time. And so they were going to experiment with publishing real books. My book was their first and last attempt at that. They had it. This was in the old days of still kind of hot type. So they had to make uh, metal page plates for each page. And they had all those plates mounted on the huge uh, press ready to rule that morning and they were pulled off the press just like 
the minute they're they're supposed to push the go button, uh, and the plates were thrown in boxes. And I was told uh, by multiple sources at the time that this was last-minute pressure from the Dallas Citizens Council, which the Citizens Council has always steadfastly denied. Um, So anyway, Taylor didn't publish it. The New York Times did a short piece on the book being suppressed, and there was a maverick publisher in New Jersey, Lyle Stewart, who said, I'll publish it. And so he published a a run of 5,000 copies, all shipped to Dallas. Uh, Half of those copies burned up in a mysterious warehouse fire. (laughs) And the the other half sold. Uh, The book was a big deal in a black southern Dallas. It was, I think my mother was the only white person uh, north of I-30, who read the book at the time. And then it just sort of sank beneath the waves. Uh, in more recent years, like 10 years ago, maybe maybe a little more than that, it started recirculating in PDFs online. And then I started getting these invitations to come talk to groups about it. They were all people who were sort of around 30 years old or younger, a lot of them had moved into uh, the city from elsewhere, and they had this great curiosity about it. And I, I was just stunned. I mean, for a long time, I didn't know, I didn't know how they found the book or why they cared. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking as one of those, um, I uh, it you. You get the sense by by the time you're my I'm I'm 34 now uh, that that a lot of fucked up things have happened in America, and I, I feel some real curiosity about them, um, both just you know for uh, macabre reasons, but also for uh, I'd like to live in a better society than the one that allowed those sorts of things to happen, and understanding seems like a, a key uh, path to that. And whenever you're trying to you know like it's of some interest to me to read about like what happened in Alabama or something like that, but. Uh, I don't live in Alabama, you know, like I, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm not going to have any say in what the future of Alabama looks like. Uh, whereas <laughs> I could yeah. have a tiny one in the city of Dallas. So I, I want to know about, you know, like what the fucked up things that were happening everywhere. Surely some of them were happening here. Uh, but there seems to be scant evidence or, you know, the, the reflections on this or even just recordings of what occurred. Uh, and so whenever you're looking for that, your book pops up pretty quick. Well, you know, it's really interesting, given the current uh, uh, debate or brouhaha about so-called critical race theory, somebody has the idea that you can suppress these stories, that you can just not even say, no, it's illegal to talk about that. We're not going to tell you about that. And the wonderful thing about generational change is that young people are born with this ferocious disrespect for their elders and, and and I think that's what keeps the world going around. And so I think a lot of young people came into the city, having, and, and, and when, when I talked to these groups, I would ask them about it. And a lot of them grew up, they're refugees from the northern suburbs. So they're, where they went to school, it was very diverse because of immigration and everything else, not economically, but racially and ethnically. And they were told, <clears throat> well, civil rights 
and segregation and all that stuff. That's history. That's way a long time. That's way back in like a different century. And that's all taken care of now. And so they come into the city. They come into North Oak Cliff, into East Dallas, and look at it and see this Mason-Dixon line across the middle of the city. And going across that line, you feel like you need a passport because it's such a different nation. And I think young people are just smart enough and curious enough to say, well, something happened here. You know, this just looking at the ground, this reflects, this looks like a war happened. And we want to know what it was. And uh, there are other histories that have been written since mine that are more scholarly. I think mine's accessible because I'm a newspaper columnist, not a scholar. I guess it's easier to read. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they found their way to my book in searching for an answer. Well, I would have to say that having read some of the I don't I don't know if I would call them more scholarly. Maybe they are written by people with greater historian type credentials than than you. I I don't think they serve the same purpose at all as the accommodation because and here's part of what I think is the genius of the accommodation is it starts from not a single event, but a single series of events, an occurrence, the bombings, uh, right. and, and, and then unfolds how Dallas used to work and to some mm -hmm. extent still does, and then ultimately shows how it still does work that way. And that is, um, I think, a rhetorical device or a narrative device that is superior to some of the other treatments of Dallas history that I think honestly make sort of horrifying things a little bit dry. Dry. And, and I realized in looking back, see, I haven't reread it in forever. And because it's coming out again, it sort of forced me to go back and look at it. I'm an old man now. I'm, I'm 75. And uh, I was, when I started working on that thing, 38. <laughs> so I was a young man then. And, and going, yeah, that's, that was actually me. And so in going back. Listeners, I just showed Jim a picture uh, from the dust jacket of the book of himself at 39 or whatever. And you know what happens? People have seen that dust jacket and then they meet me and they say, are you Jim Shoes? And I say, yes. And they say, what happened? <laughs> and I say, a lot happened, asshole. You try it. But anyway, um, I, I was saying that when I go back and look at it, I realize that I was really pissed off when I wrote that book. And I was trying to control my voice, but I think it comes through anyway that the story that Dallas told about itself at the time was so outrageous and so stupid and so wrong that it just made me furious. And I think, I think that does come across in the book. And obviously, you're not going to get that from a PhD uh, historian. Well, I think part of the thing that I don't, I, I don't get an angry sense out of is the book's conscious examination of the historical treatment of black people in Texas 
and the sort of myth that we've created in Texas that we're not part of the South, when yeah. in fact we might we may have been the worst part of the South, yeah, you know. Right. And this right. is and this was the whole function of the the 1936 exposition. Everybody thinks it's the the centennial. But in fact, the marketing behind it and the Citizens Council was the author of this marketing was that Texas is the West. Texas yeah. is the Southwest. It is not the South. And so the, the stories you tell about the treatment of, of enslaved people, um, those certainly weren't in my Texas history book in seventh grade, 1985 in San Antonio. Right. And and uh, some of those stories, like the ones that came from, you know, the Works Progress Administration in the 30s went out and interviewed all of the living survivors of, of slavery they could find. And they interviewed them all over the country, but a lot of them scattered hither and there and yon, nevertheless, uh, had been enslaved people in Texas. And so... They had these consistent stories of the march from wherever they were, Mississippi or Alabama or Louisiana, into Texas. And it's just horrific. It's just one of the many absolutely horrific stories, these death marches. Uh, and uh, there, are other, you know, there are other consistent original sources like the bulletins of the Freedmen's Bureau agents writing back during re, uh, Reconstruction to Washington about what was going on in Dallas, which was scary, but very consistent. That's where I real, you know, the uh, dragging that took place in Jasper, Texas in, uh, when was that? 2002 It's shockingly recent. James yeah. Bird, right? James Bird, and he was dragged behind a pickup truck. And and when I first read about it, I thought, I thought, gosh, uh, you know, where does that come from? And then I I clicked and I thought, wait a minute, that's in all those descriptions of the sent back by the Freedmen's agents from right here, during right after the Civil War, dragging was a was a frequent form of lynching. It was done with horses, and they would drag the person through a thick growth of trees, so they'd bounce off every tree. But but dragging didn't just pop up in Jasper out of nowhere. Dragging was part of a, a culture that goes way back, like hanging. Uh, anyway, all of that stuff is terrible. It doesn't make Dallas the Lone Ranger. I, I mean, those things happened Throughout the South, there's a lot of the racial history of the North, where I grew up, that isn't good at all. What was unique to me about Dallas was the denial. And the story that knows all that bad stuff, almost like slavery itself, that was all in the South. And Yankee carpetbagger that I was, I kept looking around thinking, I thought I was in the South. And and then I realized, oh, no, Texas makes this distinction. And in fact, Texas is not old Dixie. But as you said, that's not a good thing. Things were more raw, more un, uh, sort of unbounded here uh, than in the Old South. 
And anyway, I found that that part of the research both shocking and illuminating because it told me, okay, this is why black people here might be a little more conservative than they are in the Old South because they were dealing with a way scarier regime that that continued up through the 1920s. The whole place was run by the Ku Klux Klan. Anyway. Well, and I, you know, I've talked to this with the, with TC before I got, I bought a little piece of property in Oak Cliff and it's right on I-35. And so all of my tax notices and everything associated with the property is, you know, this address, South R.L. Thornton Freeway. And, you know, I, I, we, we had a little spasm of trying to cleanse ourselves of maybe some of the worst place names that we, we possibly could have developed. But uh, so I bought, I bought the property and I called City Hall and I said, hey, um, I have I'm a property owner. I want to change the name of this <laughs> highway. And yeah. the, uh, the the kind gentleman who answered my call and was going to send me the checklist of things I needed to do was a, uh, a, a gentleman of South Asian descent, uh, probably right. first generation, yeah. who was very keen on telling me how hard the process was and how angry it made everybody. And I said, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Google yeah. me. You, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know about all that stuff. And, you know, in the, in the, Post George Floyd era, that that eight minute tape, or that eight minute video, that window that was opened there, is a window that goes straight back through time, all the way. That, that wasn't just that moment. That that's us looking at the whole history of of racism back to slavery. That was that. Eight minutes in George Floyd's life was every day on the plantation. Uh, that stuff was happening, and and that's the the sort of awakening that we have to get to. Yeah. So uh, I I don't know. I, I almost on some level draw a bit of a lot. Like I I think that the sort of stuff like you know at, at this point we all agree that lynchings did occur and that they were bad. Um, yeah. and, and I would, I would bet that even at the point with which the Dallas Citizens that Council was at 90% TC, never say we all agree. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, okay. Um, but, uh, at the point at which the, the Dallas Citizens Council is, uh, you know, uh, working everything they can to stop the publishing of the book, I, I would assume that there was a decent consensus about it back then. Um, but there's, there's other things that, you know, like the, the basic impulse that was driving lynchings still lives in all human hearts today. Uh, and it just gets expressed in different ways. And, you know, that, that was always, I mean, the, the headline stuff of the book is very interesting, you know, of like uh, all the stuff about the bombings, I would have no idea that it occurred if I hadn't read the book. Um, but I, I'm, I'm interested, like that sort of stuff, like stopping bombings is something that they did seem to be able to achieve with some success back then. Um, right. stopping segregation, uh, they, they have failed and I'm not even sure that they tried. Uh, well, wow. but isn't that the, the deal that they made? Isn't that what they did? Isn't, didn't they yeah, go yeah. into the churches and say, look, we're going to keep them out of your neighborhoods. Just stop blowing them up. Yeah. To, to, to save segregation, really. 
Yeah. And there's, there's another very difficult piece of this. Uh, we're beginning to get into the territory where people get up in the audience and say, why are we listening to an old white man about this? And, <laughs> that was my and, next uh, question. Three yeah. white guys talk about race. Yay! <laughs> well, what a great my, podcast. And my answer is, I don't know. Can I please go home now? Uh, but, uh, but part of the puzzle here is that it takes two to tango. And the, and the, the deal that preserves segregation was accepted by black leadership. The, you know, the fact is, the history is here, that this is not a city where leadership pressed hard for integration ever. That's always been a really interesting, the one that I, uh, interesting point that you make, and you know, outside of the book, you made it in your writing before, um, of just drawing attention to this, because it's, it's it's not you can see how and I think you're well aware it's it's not a, a comfortable move to uh, people in my position, you know like the whites wondering about segregation to be like aha it could be the blacks' fault, um, yeah you know yeah. but <laughs> like that that's oh, the last absolutely. thing I want to do but, but you, that's you raise exactly good points where it goes. yeah it's why it's why you well I don't know I won't say you can't I cannot discuss this with people outside Dallas. When, when I was a working newspaper columnist, I was a cheap call for visiting journalists. That's how you you get some background. Call the local mope at the newspaper. And so on stories that dealt with race, I would get a call from some visiting somebody coming through. If I ever touched on this subject of black conservatism, I could see the the look in the, in the person's face like, oh, this guy's one of these Dallas guys. He's one of these Dallas white guys. He's going to blame this on black people. And, and it's not what I mean at all. Uh, wh what I mean is that you have to work harder to understand this context than you do the stories of the big movement cities Selma, Montgomery, and so on, are all they're all tied together by this consistent thread. Well, we ain't on that thread. We're, we're an anomalous city, an eccentric city. And heck, black, you know, black people risked their lives to, to fight for dignity in this city and stood out in the front of their houses with shotguns during the bombings to defend their families and their properties. Uh, so, so certainly I don't mean that black people here liked segregation, but I mean that black people here, you know, kind of maybe looked at the, at the white folks and sometimes thought, why do we want to go live with them? Uh, there, there was just more of a hesitancy about the idea of assimilation. Oh, I don't know. I see, yeah, I think enough. I see it a little differently. Like, um, for one thing, it was not a possibility and maybe that was more clearly communicated to them. And then in terms of like, everybody points the finger at black leadership. Um, and there are some things to be critical of, obviously, but it's like one of the things we always say about the Citizens Council is that they controlled every office for so long. They certainly didn't let in anybody who was interested in integration, you know? 
And so oh, not I, into not into elected office. No, no not absolutely at all. not. No. Uh, no, they chose the Citizens Council chose those people from the black community who were allowed to occupy elective office. Uh, and I, I just look at things like, uh, you know, I think surely you wrote uh, some article at some point um, applying this to the situation we had a couple years ago with the inland port. Um, and just it, it, it seemed to be like a, some some strain of what you're you're uh, the point you're making. Right. Is that, you know, whenever you have these communities that develop, uh, you know, you, even even if like, uh, you know, a less segregated situation would be better. Um, the, the upheaval that would that 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 would require might displace people who are currently leading and that they're fairly worried about their their own position. Yeah. And then the other thing that's going on that's just remarkable is somebody could ever quantify it. But when I look at the city I saw when I came here in 1978 and the city that's here now, there's been this enormous upward mobility of black people and families. It happens to be up and out, which is what my immigrant forebears did. Let's let's ditch this neighborhood as soon as we can. And so now scattered through the northern suburbs and more densely in the southern suburbs, you have all of this, these affluent, you know, working class to affluent, successful black families uh, who have departed from the old racially segregated neighborhood. Uh, and that has, a, that has an effect. It sort of mines out a lot of the, the people who, who might have become new leadership had they stayed. I, I talked to a young African-American guy who grew up in Frisco and his family was from Southern Dallas and he, he was in his 20s. He talked about the great difficulty of going back to Southern Dallas to talk to sort of meet with cousins and family because he said, we just live on different planets. You know, we live in different worlds with different assumptions. And uh, I don't know what you do about that. Uh, the, 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 we, we should celebrate the, the diversity and assimilation that's taken place in the suburbs. It just we didn't get to keep much of it here in the city. Well, TC and I have talked a little bit about um, the upcoming redistricting that's going to happen in the city of Dallas, as in all of the other political subdivisions that we live in. And, uh, you know, I've done a little preliminary work on the numbers that the Census Bureau released, and it's what everyone expects. The southern part of the city has continued to empty. Um, and it's it, it creates a situation where there will very likely be a district that evaporates utterly. Um, to, I mean, to the point that it just looks nothing like it looks today and it's it's alarming because so many of the council is very new that they will you know it, it will create strife and it will be very traumatic really not just for the council members but for the people that they represent the people who live in these neighborhoods who had developed whatever relationship they had developed with their leadership that is about to radically change and my my guess is that the districts in the northern part of the city will change much less 
and the districts in the southern part of the city will change in a rather radical way. And I, um, it has to happen because of the way the rules work, but it isn't great if you live, if you're a person who has spent time trying to make a southern Dallas neighborhood home and fighting for the resources that you're probably not getting in your fair share, and then suddenly your the entire leadership structure that you're used to uh, gets blown away by the fact that your neighbors left. Yeah, but let me ask a question. Given how this situation has evolved, the leadership that's left, that the, the, the persists in Southern Dallas, elected on tiny turnout, tiny amounts of turnout in the districts, tends to be funded by and loyal to the Citizens Council crowd when it when the rubber meets the road, when you get to issues like housing reform and so on. So if that leadership, far from, from championing anything I would view as good for its own community, if that leadership always reverts back to the Citizens Council position, how are we harmed if that leadership is diminished? I mean, doesn't that open the map to a more progressive district somewhere? I hope so. I mean, I really hope so. But I was more sort of expressing some sympathy for people who are sincere about wanting to make their communities better and are trying to do it within the system that they've been handed. That system is about to be uh, very different. Okay, I, and I agree with all of that. But let's take the community around uh, the the new UNT campus, uh, Southeast. So one here, here's a college campus surrounded by undeveloped land. You talk about a developer's dream. It should be possible to go in there and do all kinds of great things, but they need a few things like sewers, you know, you know from decades of economic blockade and civic blockade, the, the intentional withholding of civic infrastructure. They need that stuff. The city needs to get in there head and proactively make those investments to enable the rest of the rest of the redevelopment that can incur that could occur and it has not done that the the infrastructure has in some places continued to be withheld by elected leadership from that district and so i it's hard for me to i understand exactly what you're saying people need good leaders who will fight for them when have they had it? Philip, do you have a response? Oh, I'm sorry. I was uh, I was processing. Also waiting on AT and T to reconnect me to you two. Um, so yeah, I mean, did you see in your um, in your former employer's publication this morning a story about elected leadership in in uh, in Southeast Dallas? No, <laughs> sorry. Uh, no. If you if you don't read the Observer, that's fine. I understand. But uh, <laughs> I do I do read it. I do it, read it. It appears that uh, there's a complaint that uh, maybe Mr. Atkins um, requested that the park staff mow down some environmentally friendly landscaping at the Singing Hills Rec Center because he didn't like the way it looked. <laughs> 
And did they do it? They did do it. They did do it. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, and obviously the, the whole- person you're referring to is Robert Petrie, the guy, the developer who's a friend of yours and yeah. mine. Yeah. And full disclosure, gave me money, all that stuff, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, the, the point is not whether he and I are friends. The point is whether he could develop land he's owned for years in southern Dallas, um, which for which he would need a sewer line. And the city's yeah. uh, response to him was that he could pay for running a sewer line along the entire length of a city of Dallas street from point A where it exists to point B where it exists. And I don't remember the the distance, but it's enough where they're essentially requiring like a couple million bucks before he can build brick one on his property. Yeah. And see, I just, when I came here in 78, the first mayor I covered was Robert Folsom, who had purchased in one piece the town of Renner, north of of, of uh, Dallas and was was uh, jawboning sit, the city council into annexing Renner so we could pay to ram through all kinds of massive infrastructure so he could develop it. And, and, As a and subdivision. That was just, yeah. And that was just typical of that era, that, that it was assumed that the city would run out and make these huge investments. So these guys from Bent Tree Country Club could go make a zillion bucks developing it. And and yet, uh, typically, Petrie and other landowners in southern Dallas are treated as some kind of mooches if they ask that the city come in and do what they need done so that they can develop. Yeah, so I, I, I'm always interested, like, you know, the, the just – I, we've wandered away from the book, which is fine. Uh, I'm loving this conversation, but uh, all, all my <laughs> questions concern the book. Steer us back. No, no, no. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, like the the forces that are that are controlling things in the book, the forces that are stopping the publication of the book. Um, uh, kind of the question I'm always reading local articles to find out the answer to myself is uh, how much do those forces hold sway today? And you're sitting here, and I can ask you. So how how much do you think that? Uh, the, the, the sorts of things that shaped the kinds of events that you're talking about in the book, how much, uh, you know, is, is that same Citizens Council voice making all the decisions today? Well, nothing like they used to. I mean, they still want to. Uh, and, and the Citizens Council of today is not, I mean, you know, the recent past chairman of its board was uh, Fred Perpal, who's black and their hired uh, CEO, Kelvin Walker, is African American. <clears throat> um, this this isn't uh, thirty years ago. Things have changed a lot, and I think the, the citizens. What, what you see, though, is that the citizens' council it's hanging on by a thinner thread, and it gets really, really worried and desperate when it thinks that thread might snap, which we saw in the last mayoral contest where they 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 call themselves to action and they bring out the checkbooks when they think that the progressives might actually take over i noticed which is, that yeah, <laughs> which is which is going to happen it's inevitable but and and 
it almost seems to me there's a point at which uh, they would think, you know, these people, when we, call, we talk about the Citizens Council, we're, it's a big group, but we're really talking about a small group of old guys who sit at the very top of it. They could start talking to their own kids who were out in the community. They, they could sort of say, hey, maybe we should join this. These seem to be a bunch of smart, young, civic-minded people who want to create a better city. We need to stop viewing them as commies. But they can't. They're, they're locked in their culture. And uh, maybe, there's, maybe there's more money involved than I get. Maybe there's something I don't see where it's dollars and cents. And they just can't afford to let go. But I think they're right on the edge of losing it. And I think they know that. Yeah. And I just, you know, uh, whatever, whatever I got done reading the book, it's the natural question is like, all right, this got published in, uh, you know, the 80s. Uh, some time has passed. Mm. Like, can someone write me another book to explain in similar detail oh, the yeah. intervening years? Oh, yeah. Mark, Mark Melton's on that. He's, he's writing it right now, the sequel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I'll tell you what, this this guy, uh, Will Evans, who's the proprietor of Deep Vellum Publishing, and this is this re-genesis <clears throat> of the book is entirely his baby. It's his idea. And he absolutely thinks that the city needs a new book by somebody who doesn't look like me. And I think he is in the process. He's If he hasn't found that person, he's hunting for somebody to, to write a new version. You know, people said for, to me for a number of years, why don't you update the book? And I always think, I, I need to update myself before I update the book. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, think, I think we're going to see a, a new, something like a new version that will explain it to a new generation of readers. But, you know, um, unfortunately, we, we don't have anyone else sitting here today. Uh, could, 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 so, you know, could you summarize uh, what's going on? You know, like just I, the John Wiley Price thread is intensely interesting since I believe that he was, uh, you know, he, he's in the story of why we've not been able to have the, the book for a while now. Um, and is, is in the book at the end of like, you know, hey, here's something interesting yeah. that's happening. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've not been, uh, really pleased with the John Wiley Price political leadership experience. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. I'd love a book about that. I have a longer view of this. I mean, when I came here in 78, I came from Detroit. I think I, I'm getting a signal. My little ear pod thing may die on me in a second. We'll see what happens. Anyway, when I came here in 78 from Detroit, I thought I had stepped into a black and white Colonel Sanders chicken ad uh, because of the way white people talked in front of black people. They'd use the N-word in a restaurant or something in front of black people who were waiting on them. It was amazing. And I would talk to my fellow Yankee carpetbaggers, and they'd say, oh, it's great here. People here get along. You just don't like it because people aren't at each other's throats the way they were back up north. But this place is really cool. And some days I would wonder if I had just lost my mind. And then one day I'm driving down the street and I'm listening to the radio and the announcer says, 
But one black man disagreed. <laughs> and this young voice comes on. And it's I didn't know who it was, but it was John Wiley Price. He was a clerk to a JP court judge. And man, he was just laying down the law. If you people think this city's going to stay like this, you're crazy because it's not going to. And I'm going to see that it doesn't. And I, he and I had lunch that day. I, I went back to my desk and called him up and said, we got to meet. Uh, I, I know him from those years. Those were years of incredible courage on his part and incredibly effective leadership. I believe that he pulled the city forward uh, single-handedly, great leaps. Uh, there are later chapters where he and I disagreed vehemently but you know guys get old that that's always going to happen old men you know they just get crabby with each other uh i got a funny thing happened with this new book will evans called me up and said shoots you got to go to the Pittman hotel because we're going to have this publicity photo with you and commissioner price for your reunion <clears throat> and i said what reunion we haven't spoken in 12 years he said, yeah, you're having a reunion. That's part of the deal. So I did as I was told. I went to the pitman, and he did too. We sat down and started talking like we'd never stopped. What can I tell you? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't know. That that all sounds wonderful and amazing. And uh, to the degree to which he was able to accomplish his aims, I, I'm appreciative. But, uh, you know, I don't know. At the point at which I came on the scene, it seems like most of what he's done is – take money to, uh, you know, uh, stop improving the lives of his constituents. I mean, he was... Oh, uh, prove that. Found, yeah, go ahead and prove found, that. Found uh, not, or uh, yeah, was, was not, uh, government couldn't prove it, but uh, I don't know. Uh, it, I know what I saw, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it just, uh, it, I don't know. I, I don't mean to exclusive, focus exclusively on him. Um, I'm just, and you've, you've given your thoughts on, on you know, African-American leadership in the city in the last... Uh, 20 years or whatever, 30 years, but I'm, I'm interested in more of them. Uh, you know, just, uh, like our, I guess here's, here's one thread I like, I'm interested in, uh, you know, what, what are the positives that you see? Like, uh, are, are there things that, uh, that you're excited about? I think we're right on the edge, just right on the edge of, of a, a total takeover of the city by the, the new, Whatever we we're going to call them, I don't like any of the words. I think progressive is a dumb word. It doesn't quite cap. It Woodrow like Wilson was a progressive, <laughs> and right. and eugenics was a progressive idea. It really yeah. is not a great word. <laughs> no, but we know what we mean. There's a, there's a whole new uh, energetic, smart, civic-minded mentality out there, people who put Roots down in this city. They didn't try to run freeways through the city so they could invest all their money in Frisco. They put roots down in this city and have fought to rebuild this city. And they have great ideas for this city. It's just that they've been stymied by the old guard, the old the Citizens Council element. And I, I think that that big chunk of the iceberg is just about to break off. I we do, but maybe the next election. We, I think we, he's we describing you, TC. Solid, consistent eight votes on that council. 
And think how the city will change when that happens. I mean, think of all the stuff that can be done. So uh, kind of back to the John Wiley Price thing. I, I, you know, have no, I'm like TC. By the time I got here, Commissioner Price had, I don't know, he, he has always tried to be a voice for people who didn't have a voice. And I think he still does. I don't think that's actually changed that much. The things he chooses to dig in on and the ways he does it, I'm not always sure I'm, I agree with, but I, I read enough in your work and also um, in the work of other historians to understand that this guy was really the dude, like the only yeah. dude in a way for maybe 10, 15 years. And I will tell you that the old school Democrats in East Dallas love him unconditionally. I mean, their their faith can in him cannot be shaken. Yeah, um, they didn't give a shit about that federal trial. They still don't, um, and they they think that he is the acme of Black Dallas leadership. And so, in, in a way, I guess what I'm saying is, I see things um, as an alloy. I guess they're not, you know, nothing nothing is all one way or another. It's just that, you know, in recent years, there have been issues where it seems like he's not on the side of the people. Um, but I, I just I don't know. You know, it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, you write the book and people want you to update the book and you're not updating the book. And so the book is what we have. It's the same deal with the memories of the people who knew him when he was the young firebrand demanding justice for people who for years not only. Uh, did not demand justice, but were told that they couldn't. Yeah. And once that bond is forged, it's like, I, I know exactly the kind of person you're talking about. And if I try to, to, to criticize Price, I, see, I feel like I'm, I'm saying, you know, Jesus made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and you, know, you, get, you get this look like Shut up, buddy. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, and anyway, uh, we have had our differences. And lately, Price has done stuff like, uh, I think he's anti mask. I mean, I just, there's stuff that happens that I don't get. I, I don't, but that's true generally. Uh, Someone <laughs> recently reminded me that one of his big problems with me was that I was gay. <laughs> which is a little bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, that's a very tangled web. <laughs> I think we yeah. just won't go there. <laughs> I think we won't go there. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I guess, uh, you know, as, as I'm sitting here thinking about things, um, I, I think probably the big question, like the, the question, the most relevant question, like to the book or anyone coming to it or anyone thinking about these kinds of matters is like, how how do we get to a city that that isn't the way that you described? Like wh wh whenever you're talking about like uh, it seems like there's a war that's been going on here, and I can tell pretty easily where the the battles were fought because whenever I step over this street, it seems like it's different yeah. on the other side. Uh, yeah. You know, I I, I don't I, I love living in Dallas and, and presume that I will for all of my life, but I don't want to live in a city like that. So I would like for Dallas to cease being a city like that. Uh, do, do you see any way to get there? What kind of things would you uh, think would be good good next steps? All the best stuff that I've ever seen has has come straight up out of 
neighborhoods. And I say that advisedly. I've lived in the same neighborhood now for 30 years, and it's like an all-cousin town in East Texas. We, you know, we have these feuds that last for 10 years, and there, there's a dark side to people knowing each other that well for that long. But all the, the larger uh, successful ideas in the city have come out of grassroots and neighborhoods and people saying, we don't want a damn freeway through here. We, you know, we want to live here. Um, I think the more that that is empowered, the more we understand that that doesn't mean we're, we're all going to agree at all. I mean, the, the motto for Dallas when I got here was, or, no, it was the motto for my newspaper. Um, on the front of the Times Herald, the Times Herald stands for Dallas as a whole. W H O L E. And, <laughs> and uh, I was worried about the W falling off. But, but <laughs> I, I think that's the citizens. The old idea is that dissent is just wicked and, and that, that uh, any kind of diversity of feeling and opinion is disloyal and what we need to do is, is go as far away from that idea as possible do everything we can to empower people where they are in their neighborhood groups in their in in their associations and in their parts of town and empower their council members i i wish that uh I, i'd be interested in hearing what philip thinks of this I wish they could at least double the council member's pay, give the council member a really well-paid administrative assistant whom she or he hires, the council member hires and fires, and then have an entire staff under the council like the legislative research uh, council in Austin that, that works not for the city manager at all, but for the council. I, I, I wish it, as, a, as a governmental reform that we could empower the council as a way of empowering districts, as a way of empowering neighborhoods. I think that's where all the good stuff comes from. I would say that, one, I tried. Um, yeah. you, you can still find video of me making about a zillion motions and going through um, a master's level dissertation on the Roberts Rules of Order to try to get a bigger council pay raise to the voters. Uh, yeah. And what we wound up with was $60,000 not indexed to inflation. I was really, really trying to get the indexing uh -huh. because that keeps you from having this stupid conversation over and over and yeah. over again. Um, and I, was, I just wasn't successful. And it's a funny meeting because you can see the two sides of this issue more or less nakedly represented in supporting or opposing whatever I was saying at the time. Um, but I would say those are excellent ideas. The other large cities in Texas um, give their council members far more staff, um, pay them far better. Uh, I, I was the first council member to hire a lawyer for the office and I had to, you know, I had to get the rules changed so we could actually pay that person enough to take the job. And even then she took the job because she's a, an ideals motivated person, not because it was very remunerative for her. 
But the best idea that I've heard that's the cheapest uh, came from our former city auditor who said, who used to work for the state government. And what he said was, what council needs more than anything is a budget director that oh. is hired and fired by them and reports only to them and is budgeted for separately. That was another one of the, the charter amendments I proposed is budgeting for the auditor separately so that the city manager couldn't cut the auditor's budget, mm -hmm. um, and, which I, I, would, I would posit has worked out okay. But in any case, the, there's, a, there's a reason to think that that would work is if, if there were if there were more power in the individual council offices, you could potentially see neighborhoods exercising more power, which would cause more people to be interested in what the hell their neighborhoods were doing, which would then have the salutary effect of having a broader variety of voices brought to the table. The problem has become, not just in Dallas, but all over the place, is that neighborhood people who have benefited from segregationist zoning uh, are very interested in preserving segregationist zoning. And it's ex yeah. exceptionally hard to educate them enough about how much density our city is going to need in the future for them not to be other than simply uh, anti-density. And, and I can, you know, Jim, you and I know a dozen people in East Dallas who are leaders in the community who think of density as a, a, a swear word. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, and unfortunately uh, in, in all American cities that are a little farther along than Dallas, along the progressive or whatever word we're going to develop for it. I mean, shit, just call it liberal. I don't care. Um, the, the, uh, along the spectrum is that there has become a divide on the left between um, uh, urbanists and neighborhood people and, and, and social justice progressives and neighborhood people. And that is something I hope Dallas is able to avoid in the future. And maybe it's just a salutary effect of the, the slow pace of our change that people in your neighborhood and my neighborhood have a chance to learn what the city really needs to look like 30 years down the road. That's a, that's an awfully long time frame to impose on a voter, but it, you know, if, yeah. if we, if we care what the city is 30 years from now, then you got to learn. So I live uh, half a block from Skillman and on my side of Skillman is the Swiss Avenue historic district, all single family. On the other side of Skillman was a neighborhood of modest working class cottages, small, small homes. That's all just, a high, I walked my dog there this morning. It's been overwhelmingly converted to condos. To, uh, and a lot of them are nice, fancy schmancy, uh, you know, great big condo buildings. So I, I see all people walking around there walking their dogs, carrying cups of coffee, who are a half to a third of my age. And I look at them and I think, these people live in density. They are density. Density is absolutely cool with them. They wouldn't even understand the old people in my neighborhood who think that density is, is like the, the end, the, the great evil. Uh, uh, so, and... So that generational change has got to have a huge effect on the city. 
you know, I remember talking to a very respected neighbor, city leader who lives in my neighborhood about a bill, uh, 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 some properties nearby, right on the edge of the neighborhood that was just abandoned and empty and full of crackheads. And so a guy wanted to buy them and build condos there. This is 15 years ago. And she was fighting him. And I said, do you really believe that an old falling down house full of crackheads is better than four condo units? And she said, of course. It's a single family residency. <laughs> and I said, well, there ain't anything in there that I would call a single family right now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just a, a, I think that's a really generational divide. And uh, I, I, I just see it changing enormously all around me. Yeah, I hope so. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm moving to there because I, I think the density is great and would like more of it, right? Like, uh -huh. uh, you know, the kinds of commercial developments that you have along Greenville, uh, you know, it's those those are afforded by density, right? Like, you can't just have yeah. dense commercial development with uh, ten people living around each of them on an acre. Right, right, right. yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I you know I I don't know why the uh, anti-density folks don't go live in Frisco. There's a lot of good available options. <laughs> we we made a whole yeah. city for people with this viewpoint. Why 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 are we having this conversation still? But anyways, I'm glad that they live there. I I welcome them. But anyways, um, Philip, you got any other uh, any other stuff? I think he's frozen. Uh, I've always thought that. <laughs> I have a, I have a question. Sure. Of the three of us. How many are wearing pants? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know that I'm willing to answer that. Uh, okay. <laughs> I thought that was the the comfort afforded me by the uh, shoulders up Zoom call. Okay. All right. Uh, it doesn't look like Philip's going to get unstuck, and I, I have another number of other things to do tonight. So. Um, okay. I think hey, listen, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, and you too. This this is the absolute honor. Uh, Philip, I think we were wrapping up. You were frozen for a second there. I was not just frozen. AT&T actually managed to disconnect me. Okay. It was oh. wonderful. <laughs> um, but yeah, th this, is, this has been awesome. Uh, I, I thank you so much, uh, Mr. Schutz, for your time um, and, and for all your work. I mean, you know, my, the, to the extent that I have this interest in uh, local politics, it's mainly from reading your stuff at The Observer and wow. uh, other places and uh, you know I, I i just can't tell you how much you've done to uh, shape my worldview on these issues and i appreciate all of it that's, that's great to hear and i'm i'm flattered that to be a guest you know talking to guys my age someday you're going to be looking at me on one of these things and say he's frozen he's frozen oh my god no he's <laughs> 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 Hopefully not. All right. Soon. Well, Jim, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm, I hope that we can uh, sell some more copies of the book. I still want to read it for the audiobook, but um, <laughs> this, this this episode has nothing to do with me lobbying Will for that. But okay, it, it is nice of you to to come and share a little bit. I honestly, I'm sure you're going to have to answer the same questions about a million times while you're selling this book, which I think is what an author has to do. But uh, it's kind of you to share with us. Our our listeners well, will definitely appreciate it. Well, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me.